welcome to the Restoration Church Life Podcast. We hope this resource helps keep you informed about the various happenings inside the life of our church and equips you to make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Welcome to another round of T2. Uh, We have named this after Titus chapter 2. So in Titus chapter 2, Paul is instructing Titus, and he is instructing them about how the the church should operate. And in chapter 2, he talks about how the members of the church should essentially be discipling one another. And he ends with verse 10, and he says, So that in everything they, that is the church, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so we've named this T2 because that's what we want to happen. We want our church discipling one another that we might adorn or show how beautiful and brilliant the doctrine of God is. And so our goal here is not just to fill heads. Our goal is to hopefully inflame hearts and encourage serving hands as we disciple one another in the, in the things and the doctrines of Christ. And so... These classes are aimed at being biblically based, so you should check what we say always, whether that's in here or on Sunday mornings preaching or anywhere else with the Bible. So make sure what we're saying is coming from God's Word. And hopefully after these classes we'll be even better equipped to do that if we think about making sense of the Bible. So biblically based, discussion driven. And so the idea is not to have me simply talking for the next 50 minutes. That would be boring for you and for me. And so when we ask questions, we actually want you to talk. Because we want to disciple one another. We want to learn from each other. And finally, application-oriented. And so we want to be driving towards application. Ironically, today will be the less application-oriented of the next three. Uh, but that is our goal, is to be biblically-based, discussion-driven, and application-oriented as we seek to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. And so over the course of February, we're going to be looking at making sense of the Bible. And so uh, our hope is to both equip you to be better students of the Bible, but also equip you to disciple others in their reading of the Bible. And we'll see, hopefully today, how all this is connected to our mission of delighting in the supremacy of Christ and helping disciple others. So that's where I want to start. I want to start with what is the Bible. So growing up, I had a somewhat tangential relationship with the church. And the the knowledge that I had about the Bible was, in the Old Testament, uh, you tried to please God by work. And the New Testament was about this guy named Jesus. And the Bible was filled with uh, what I would call heroes and zeros. And so you tried really, really hard to be like the heroes, and then you tried really, really hard to not be like the zeros. And so that was my understanding of the Bible, that it was this random mixture of moralistic stories that really weren't connected. Uh, But I don't think that's the case. So in your Bibles, turn to Genesis 1. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's the first book on the first page, first sentence. Someone read Genesis 1-1 for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, one more time, nice and loud for everybody. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does this verse begin to tell us? God is a creator. God's always been. 
He was before the beginning. This is about what God is doing. This is about what God is doing. So the subject of the first sentence of the first verse of the first chapter of the Bible is God. I think that clues us in, in a way, to who the Bible is about. And guess what? It's not about you. And it's not about me. So before the Bible is anything else, it's a book about God. It reveals who God is. It tells us what God has done. It tells us what God is doing. And it enlightens us to what God will do. And so there's continuity from Genesis, the beginning, to Revelation, the end. And so unlike I thought when I was growing up, it's not a random collection of moralistic fables. And so there's all these types of genres, all these types of books, but there's one story, or some people might say there is a meta-narrative, an overarching theme, and it's God chasing after his children. So let me invite all of you, go from Genesis to Luke. Turn to Luke, chapter 24. And so... While you turn there, I'm going to read a verse out of John. And this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. They thought they could get to heaven by obeying God's word. And so Jesus is talking to them in John chapter 5, and he rebukes them. He says to this, you, that is the Pharisees, search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So the Pharisees thought that in the scriptures, if they just obeyed these rules, they would get eternal life. And Jesus says, it is they that bear witness about me. So from the words of Christ, we have him saying, the Bible is about himself. That sets us up for Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we have these disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus has risen from the grave and these disciples are wondering, oh, what's happened? I thought he was the Savior. And Jesus shows up. Someone read Luke 24, 24 through 27 for us. He sees in himself the fulfillment of everything that was been written beforehand. So what does that mean about what has been written? It's all about him. Yeah, so Jesus picks up his Hebrew Bible, and he begins to walk through the best. If I could pick anywhere to be in the Scriptures, I think this would be where it was. Sitting down with Jesus in a Bible study with a Hebrew Bible, him just walking through and say, yep, that's about me. Yep, I fulfilled that one. Yep, that's about me. Yep, you messed up there. That's why I had to die. Right? That's, that's what he's doing throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. And so Jesus, from his own lips, we have him saying, the Bible is ultimately about me. And so what does that mean for us as we read the Bible? Yeah, where are we seeing him? How do we get to Jesus? And so that's one of the things that hopefully over these classes that we'll learn to do is because there's a wrong way to do that and there's, I think, an appropriate, authorial, intended way to do that. And we must do that. If, if If you read the Bible and it doesn't get you to Jesus, well, then you didn't read the Bible because the Bible is about Christ. And so... um Think about, I'm going to give you a minute or so, I want you to try in your own words, you may not be able to do this, but write the the message of of the Bible in a sentence. On your own little, try to think about how you would encapsulate the message of the Bible in one sentence. So here are a couple that I looked up this week. Um, God chose one man 
Abraham, in order to make of him one great nation, Israel, so that through it he might bring forth one great Savior, Jesus, and through him demonstrate God's glory and extend God's grace to all peoples. Here's another one, the shorter. God has made promises to bring his people to himself, and he's fulfilling them all through Christ. Here's one that you've heard us use quite often. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing for God's glory. There's one thing I don't like about that one, even though we use it all the time. What's missing from that? Jesus. Right. Now we understand Jesus is God, so he's not missing, but at the same time, we, I think it's helpful to be very explicit and Christocentric. Here's one that I love that is just simple. God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixes it. Alright, so I think however you could, you could come up with numerous of these. Uh, but however you slice it, we have to understand the Bible is about God's gracious redemption of all peoples and glorious restoration of creation through the life, death, burial, resurrection, reign, and return of Christ. So every part of the Bible, every story we read, every chapter has to fit into this overarching narrative, this overarching story. And so that's, again, what we hope to help you do uh, as we think about in this classes. But before we get there, I think it's helpful to ask another question. Why study the Bible? So we know what it is, but why should we study it? So what are some bad reasons, some bad motivations to study God's Word? To please God. Why is that a bad motivation? Isn't God pleased when we read the Bible? So why does a bad motivation to read it to please God? It works. So if we think, I need to read the Bible to please God, what are we saying about Jesus? He wasn't enough. That's right. And so a, a bad motivation would be, I need to read this in order to please God. So if you feel guilty or ashamed because like you missed a quiet time, I think it's a good opportunity to examine your heart and ask, why am I reading the Scriptures? There should be a desire, but ultimately that's a bad motivation. What would be some other bad motivations for reading the Scriptures? To get blessings. What do you mean by that, Mel? Yes. Yeah. So if I read the Bible, maybe I'll do good in my work today, or I'll really nail that presentation, or I'll whatever, fill in the blank. Why is that a bad, what's wrong with that motivation? It's about you. God is not a vending machine. Yet, if that's how we're reading the Bible, that's what we're doing. I put in my quarter of quiet time and I expect a candy bar to pop out. So we don't read it to earn God's favor. We don't read it just to get stuff from God. Another, any other bad motivations for reading the Bible? To puff ourselves up in knowledge. Right? So we don't want to read. Hopefully that's a product of reading the Bible. But what is wrong with that alone? We just had knowledge. So knowledge can puff us up. So we can know a lot of things about the Bible. We can know a lot of stuff about the Bible, yet not know and trust God. And so those are, I think, some, some bad. So we had, don't read it to earn God's favor. Don't read it to get stuff from God. And don't read it just to puff up in knowledge. All right, so why should we study? So we, there's some bad motives. So why should we study it? A couple reasons. Uh Study because it's a window, or to see God, or to study to know God. The Bible is a word from God about God. 
We can see him in the Bible like we can see nowhere else. We just can't. And so how does the Bible reveal God in ways we cannot see, say, in creation or in other people? How does the Bible reveal God in a very specific way? So it tells what he thinks about himself. It gives us the motivation for the event of the Bible, right? So it doesn't just report that God uh, parted the Red Sea for his people. Um, A movie can and has done that. But what does the Bible do? It explains why God would do those things. And it connects it to the overall narrative. And so the Bible reveals God, and we know his motivations, we know his heart. And so the ultimate goal of reading the Bible is to know, love, praise, enjoy God. It's about God, we come to the Bible for God. Not to please Him, not to get stuff from Him, not just to learn about Him, but to enjoy Him. And so we cannot love what we do not know, and God has revealed Himself authoritatively in the Bible. So we read the Bible to know God. We also read the Bible, because like I say, it's a mirror to know ourselves. How does the Bible give us a more accurate picture of ourselves and the world around us? So it exposes our sin, right? Like passages like um, uh, in Ephesians 1 where it talks about us being dead um, in our transgressions before Christ, and that's not necessarily knowledge that we have without it. Yeah, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to paint an accurate picture of our spiritual state, which only comes from knowledge from God. That's, if we're dead, we don't understand that ourselves. How else does it give us an accurate picture of ourselves and the world around us? Convicts us and breaks us. So it might not, as you're reading the Bible, it might bring to mind a very specific situation or sin. And the Spirit and His kindness begins to apply that to our hearts and lives. Amen. It helps us understand it. Like who we are. We're image bearers. I mean, we'll teach on that in the fall uh, in terms of why does this matter for all of life. But being an image bearer, both the tells us who we are in terms of our worth and dignity and value, and it also begins to explain our purpose, which is a huge question to people. What is my purpose? Why am I here? I heard something else over here, too. Somebody's going to say something. I was going to say it shows that we're set apart, because you see throughout all of Scripture that God has a chosen people. And so while we also see our sin and um, how we live in the fallen world, we also see how we as believers are set apart and being redeemed throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it also shows us as God's people how we are to live, both enjoying Him and blessing others. How does that help us understand our world, the world around us? Yes, there is nothing new under the sun. And so you can read, you know, Moses or Abraham or David or Peter or whoever, and you're like, yeah, that sounds an awfully lot like myself and the world in which I live. So that's one way. We see things aren't new. How else does it help us explain the world in which we live? Yeah, so it, it explains the ultimate issues in the world. Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the prince of power, spirit, right? Cosmic rulers of the present age. Yes. And so it, it brings a realness to the spiritual dimension of our lives, which often we, we neglect or can neglect if God's not calling us to. 
Any other ways you think about the Bible helps us understand ourselves or the world? I think it shows that it's redeemable too, right? Like to kind of echo what Meg was saying about us, it shows us that like God's plan is not just to destroy the world and bring us all up to like a castle in a cloud, but he's actually going to bring the kingdom down to earth and remake it. So there, there's hope in kind of all the bad stuff that we were talking about. That's right. It helps us understand and give an answer for the hope that everybody has. And so, I like to say the Bible is realistic, yet optimistic. Meaning it's realistic. If we read the Bible and we understand the brokenness that sin brings, both, that's, I'm talking personally, but I'm also just talking corporately. Right? So sin has a corporate effect. So, we shouldn't be surprised when we hear of things like earthquakes or hurricanes. We, we shouldn't be surprised when we hear about wars and famines. Like the, it shouldn't surprise us. The, the scriptures tell us it's broken. Romans 8, creation groans for redemption. And so that's why I love the Bible. It's realistic. Like It doesn't sugarcoat things. It, it helps explain the world. And so I have an answer for why the world's not the way it's supposed to be. Yet, as Travis and Meg said, there's also a hope. It's realistic, but it's optimistic. It paints a picture of the world that we want. No more tears, no more death, no more suffering, no more cancer, no none of that. And so I think it gives us this accurate picture of ourself and the world. So we read the Bible to know God. We read the Bible to know ourselves. We also read it because, it's, as I say, it's a compass and an anchor. And so, as we've already hinted at, it does give us direction in our life. Left to ourselves, we don't know. And so we're tempted to buy into the lies of the world. That I'm defined by my job, I'm defined by my relationship status, I'm defined by what I can do, I'm defined by whatever. And the Bible comes along and says, no, in Christ, your identity's in Christ. And even if you're not in Christ, you're still worthy because you're made in the image of God. And so it reminds us of those things. And it also reminds us that the holy life is the happy life. That when we pursue holiness, we're actually pursuing happiness. When we pursue Jesus, we're pursuing joy. That's what we're seeing in Philippians, isn't it? That joy is not based on circumstances. And so, the Bible reminds us, because left to ourselves, I'm tempted to think that my circumstances define me, determine my happiness, all these things. The Scripture continually reminds me. No, the holy life, is it harder? Yeah, but it's happier. The pursuit of Jesus is the pursuit of joy. And as we remember that, we don't just read the Bible for ourselves. This is huge. We read the Bible for others. If we want to love others, we have to be immersed in God's Word. So the Scriptures equip us to better understand maybe what people are dealing with and allows us to speak into it, right? So this is Ephesians 4, that we come alongside one another to disciple one another. And so only when we know God can we really truly love others. And so I encourage you to read your Bibles to know God, to know yourself, and to love others. Which is basically the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So the ultimate reason we study the Bible, I quote, is so that God's infinite worth and beauty would be exalted in the everlasting white-hot worship of the blood-bought bride of Christ from every people, 
language, tribe, and nation. No God worship so that all peoples might know him. Or, more simply, our mission statement. Restoration Church exists to, to make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Well, how do we delight in Christ? We have to know him. Well, how do we know him? Through his word. How do we make disciples? Well, we have to, what does Jesus say? Make disciples and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. What does that require? That we help them learn how to read the Bible. And so one of the main reasons we're teaching this class is so, so that you can delight in the supremacy of Christ. And then go and make disciples that do the same. So this is rooted in what we do and why we exist as a church. So that's why there's some bad reasons that we talked about to read the Bible. Don't do it to earn God's favor. Don't do it to try to get stuff from God. Don't do it just to take selective truths out of God's Word. But read it to delight in the supremacy of Christ and make disciples. But how? How do we do this? We know what the Bible is. We begin to know why we should study it. But how do we study God's Word? Let me talk at a general level and then we're going to get specific. So generally, I think we can read the Bible with two emphases. The first emphasis would be on familiarity or breadth. So when I talk about familiarity or breadth, I'm talking about sitting down and reading chunks and chunks of Scripture. So maybe reading the book of Matthew in two or three sittings. Maybe reading Exodus, you know, ten chapters at a time. Maybe reading um, Proverbs all in one sitting. Lots and lots of Scripture. What's the benefit in doing this? What's the benefit in sometimes reading the Bible Large chunks of scripture, getting familiar with God's glory. What, what's, what's the benefit to that? So seeing the big picture. And how does it help you do that? So you're going to see some of the overarching themes. If you read Exodus in two or three sittings, you're going to see themes that you wouldn't see if you just read, you know, a chapter and got confused by all the stuff about the tabernacle and the flowers and the whatever. So that's one reason. What are some other benefits? Think of any other benefits of these overarching familiarity? So yeah, it does help bring knowledge of God's Word. So that the, all these ways is it helps us understand God's character in a broad way. It understands the nature of God's Word in a very broad way. It helps us see those connections between the Old and the New Testament. Right. So when I think about shadow and reality, it's going to help me understand uh, how Jesus is connected. What are some drawbacks in reading the Bible this way. <laughs> yeah, there's too much information, right? So if you read the book of Exodus in two or three sittings, there's going to be a lot of stuff you just don't understand. And I think that's okay, but yeah, there's probably, we should probably go back. That's right, yeah. It's like when you're reading a novel, right? You don't read every word of every sentence and digest. No, you, you begin to kind of selectively go through. We can do the same thing with God's Word. So while it's important, there's also a drawback. And so we should, at times, read the Bible with this emphasis. But we also need to read it in another way, with a focus on intimacy and depth. And so when I talk about reading the Bible with intimacy and depth, I'm talking about smaller portions of Scripture, maybe a paragraph, maybe a verse, at times, maybe a word. 
Like you're meditating on a word in context, but you're meditating on a single word. What are some benefits of reading the Bible this way? I mean, as we're seeing in Philippians, it gives you the chance to really explore kind of all the different facets of a certain point that, like we were saying earlier, you might otherwise just sort of gloss over. Right, yeah, so you get to really meditate. Right, when I see the word joy, what does that mean? How does that work itself out? Oh, I see that in these seven other, 14 other places in Philippians. Okay, let's think about that word joy. So most of us don't need to read fast. We probably need to read slower and, and meditate on these things. And so I, I think as we go narrow and deep, it, it creates an intimacy with God. We're fully understand. So whereas the, the, the large familiarity may give us broad swaths of God's character, when we, when we sit on a specific verse or paragraph, we're going to really start to see the precision of his character and apply it with specific ways to our lives. We're going to understand um, and, and look deeply. And so we need to read at times with those two different emphases. Now, yes? Do you have any rough guidelines for like how important, how much you should read for depth, how much for uh, breadth? You're stealing out of my manuscript. The answer is no. <laughs> uh, so I don't, I, I mean, what I wrote here, this, there, there's a not hard and fast rule on how to break them up. Like, I just don't have, some of us are going to be more given to one than the other. I really have to force myself to read chunks and chunks of scripture. I would rather just sit down in an epistle and just start marking it up. And so I know I need to pull myself that way. Now, there might be some of you that are really narrative focused, and you love just reading Samuel. Like, you need to sometimes just not do that. And so I think just having those categories and asking yourself, am I spending some time in both? So right now, a good way to do this would be, I think you can really easily dive narrow and deep, which is by spending a few mornings focusing on the passage that's going to pre be preached on Sunday. It's going to be a verse or two. And then maybe in your other Bible readings, just pick an Old Testament narrative and just start reading through. Right? So we try to do this with our preaching. You'll notice with Isaiah, we did swaths and swaths of Scripture. Well, now we're stopping and now we're doing Philippians. So we even try to model this in the way we preach. And so other than saying both should be present, I don't, I don't have a, yeah, I don't, I don't think there is a hard question. That, that's general, but specifically, how do we begin to, to read about? How do we, how do we play this out? And I'm, I'm, what I'm going to hopefully do here is set us up for the, the other three classes. So I mentioned today was the less application oriented. Come back next week, we're going to spend a whole lot of time doing a lot of application oriented stuff. And then the following weeks. But, so how do we study the Bible specifically? One, two reminders, and then we'll get into it. You have to remember you're reading to delight in God. That is the, you have to remember that. You're reading to delight in God. You also have to remember it's a spiritual activity. So, ironically, I'm going to give you a formula for reading the Bible. But guess what? There is not a formula for reading the Bible. It is a spiritual activity. Uh, so the, the, the Bible, we must rely on the Spirit to, to give us uh, understanding. And so if we read... 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him because he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but himself is judged by no one. For who has understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct them? But we have the mind of Christ. So the Spirit must reveal God's word to us. And so prayer is a prerequisite for understanding God's word.
So we're going to talk a lot about reading the Bible, but just know from from this point, it cannot happen apart from prayer, both before, during, and after. They go together. So I, I like to use the analogy of sailing. I don't know a whole lot about sailing, but I know there's a lot of parts, and it caught, there's a whole lot of work you got to do. Right? you got to steer, you got to put up the sail, you got to run around, you're probably sweating. But there's one thing you can't control that's really important. What is it? The wind. You can try with all your effort. It's just not going to work. But yet, if you don't do the work, and the wind comes, what's going to happen? Nothing. You've got to put the sail up, and then you got to pray the wind comes. So it is with reading the Bible. Reading the Bible is analogous to putting the sail up. But it's not just, oh, I pray the Spirit comes. Oh, No, God has told us. He chooses to blow His wind of the Spirit through the Word. He's told us that. So we don't have to guess, is this where the Spirit's going to blow? Like, no, this is where I blow. So we have to pray as we read. To so remember, before you sit down, delighting in God and the Spirit has to blow. But even with hard work, good intentions are not simply enough. So imagine, this is kind of getting what we talked about earlier. Imagine Sue, she wakes up, gets her coffee, knows she needs to read the Bible. She really hasn't got a plan, so she opens up her Bible, and she is determined to apply the first thing she reads. She reads, when Jesus heard this, he said to them, you lack one thing, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Her obedience might be commendable, right? But the problem is Jesus was speaking to a very specific situation, to a very specific person. But she makes out better than John. He was confident God had a word for him, so he flipped to Matthew 27.5 and read, Judas went away and hanged himself. Not sure exactly what God meant. He closed his Bible and tried again. Luke 10.37, go and do likewise. <laughs> a bit freaked out. Now, he's, he, I'm going to try one more time. John 13, 27, what you're about to do, do quickly. <laughs> Poor John. So good intentions alone are not enough. 2 Timothy 2, 15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So we need to think about how can we rightly handle the word of truth. So there's some really bad methods of studying the Bible. The magic eight ball method. Shake it up and pick a verse. Not helpful. What's wrong with that? Everything you just said. <laughs> yeah. Yearbook method. What happens when you get a yearbook? What's the first thing you do? You find yourself. And then if you're really honest, you start comparing yourself to others. I look better or worse. So... We don't read the Bible as if it's a yearbook, go find ourselves and start comparing ourselves. What's wrong with that? It's not about us. It's not about us. It has something to say about us, but ultimately it's not about us. The pinball method. What happens in a pinball machine? It's all over the place. I read this, oh that reminds me of this passage. No, that reminds me of this passage. Oh, that reminds me of this. What's wrong with that if that's the primary way we're studying the Bible? Lacks context. The expert method? You read the passage and immediately go to the study notes or commentary. The expert method. So you read a passage and then you immediately go to the study notes that are so helpful in your Bible or a commentary. What's wrong with that? Right, you're reading someone else's opinion of the word. And why is that, why is that maybe not most helpful? That's right. 
as much as we love John Piper and Penn Keller and Jonathan Edwards and whoever else, they're humans, just like us. We're called to love God with our mind. Not Jen Wilkins' mind, not Tim Keller's mind, not whoever's mind, right? For our mind. So to Daniel's point, it helps us. The support group method, we read a passage, we close it, and we ask, what does this mean to you? What's wrong with that? It's not about you. That's right. How do you feel about this passage? That might be helpful, but that's, that can't be the first thing that we ask. There's going to be a whole lot of passages that I just don't feel that great about. But that's what God needs to work in me. So those, so Magic 8 Ball, yearbook, you go on. Those are ways not to study. So how should we? Okay. So we need a solid method for interpreting the Bible. The technical word is hermeneutics. So whenever you hear the word hermeneutics, all that word means is a, is a, it's a method or theory of interpretation. And in our case, we want to interpret the Bible. And so the goal is to insightly, insightfully observe, correctly understand, and precisely apply the author's intended meaning. We want to observe it, understand it, apply what the author said. There's not many meanings. There is one meaning. All right, one more passage for us. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 through 21. Would someone read that nice and loud for us? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were here with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What are some of the things this passage teaches us about the nature of God's Word? It's inspired by God. Which therefore means it's true and trustworthy. God is a God of truth. His word is in, inerrant and he's trustworthy. It's infallible, meaning if you follow it, you'll follow the path of righteousness. What else do we learn? No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Meaning, there's one true interpretation. And only one. And we can't have many different meanings of one passage. Now, even people who love Jesus might disagree on a passage. But what we can't say is, hey, we're both right. Fortunately, God is very clear on the most important things. Think about the gospel. Radically. Also, look at verse 19. Read the beginning of verse 19 again. Who's reading? And we have something more sure, the prophetic word. Okay, that's good. We have something more sure. So Peter just says, listen, I was on the mountain with Christ. Transfiguration. And we have something more sure. Why? Because this is the, the authoritative interpretation of that event. Peter was there and saw what happened, but he didn't get the authoritative interpretation until the word came. 
So we have something more sure. And so the Bible comes from God, it's about God, with an intended meaning to help us delight in Him. So how do we study it? Three steps. Observation, interpretation, application. Those will be our next three weeks. Observation, interpretation, application. So the first major step is observation. So we simply want to ask, what do I see? So we want to look at a passage of Scripture, and we want to look at the details, observing what is there, what isn't there. That's what we'll do next week. We're going to go through a list of how do we begin to observe God's Word in a way that's helpful. The second major step is interpretation. We want to figure out what a passage means. You see, we don't ask, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to you? We simply ask, what does it mean? And so that's our job as interpreters, is to figure out what it means. And then, and only then, do we move on to application. Because once we understand what a passage means, we can begin to faithfully apply it. So application asks, why does it matter? Or how should I change? So that's what we'll, we'll cover. And so this, this method teaches, one, it lets the, the text be authoritative. We're trying to read stuff out of the text and listen to the text, not read into it. The other neat thing about this is you can learn this in five minutes, but it takes a lifetime to begin to continue to, to work itself out. The other cool thing is it's a very easy, I mean, there's a couple of you in here that I've actually done this with and just taken you and taught you how to try to read the Bible. So it's a very easy way to begin to disciple others. Our hope is at the end of this, half an hour working on a booklet that's going to put all this into a little Restoration Church booklet for us to have to begin to make disciples with others. And so I like to say it's 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 like riding a bike. Right? So I've been taught Sadie how to ride a bike, LK's next. And when you teach a kid to ride a bike, what do you do? Like, what do you have to do? Come alongside of them? And what are you doing the whole time? Praying they don't fall, yes. But they do. They're like, alright, alright, you gotta get on, you gotta balance, right foot, left foot, steer, crash. Alright, let's start over. Right foot, left foot, steer. Look where you're going. Right, the whole time you're giving a lot of specific instruction. Let him go. Let him go. And they, they, they too stop thinking about every little single step. It becomes more fluid and more natural. And so it is when we study the Bible. And so literally when I first started studying the Bible, it was nothing. I would get out paper and I'd have a column for observation, interpretation, and application. But now, it's a bit more fluid. I'm doing it, but it's a bit more fluid. And so no matter where you are on this journey of following Christ, you might need to get out a piece of paper sometimes and like, right, here's my observations, here's my interpretations, and here's my applications. And that's fine. There's probably at some point when it's going to come like riding a bike and you're just going to hop on and start riding. And that's the, that's the, the goal over these next couple of weeks. And so, uh, just a reminder... If you're here, you've never read the Bible, it's new to you, you don't know what to do, I think you'll be really helped by these classes. If you're here and you've been reading the Bible your entire life, I still think you'll be very helped because none of us know everything. So we might need to learn or relearn. But also, again, don't just keep yourself in view. We have to be thinking about discipling others and helping them delight in Christ. And so you'll be able to have a at least one method for helping others read the Bible as well. So next week will be observation, and I'll have the joy of teaching that again, uh, and then we'll have some others teach interpretation and application.
Welcome to the Restoration Church Life Podcast. We hope this resource helps keep you informed about the various happenings inside the life of our church and equips you to make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Jesus Christ.